I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Arnold. And I could think and concentrate and visualize how I'm going to become a bodybuilding champion, how I'm going to move to America, how I'm going to get into movies, how I'm going to make millions of dollars. Today, we're talking to executive producer Alan Hughes and director Leslie Chilcott. From a tiny village in Austria to the limelight of championship bodybuilding, from conquering Hollywood to capturing Sacramento, Arnold Schwarzenegger stands apart. For the first time, Arnold talks at length about his journey as an athlete and unlikely box office sensation, as well as his jump from public figure to public servant and governor of California. He also opens up about the scandals that rocked his personal life. With commentary from friends, rivals, and colleagues, the series explores Schwarzenegger's Terminator-like drive to reach a rarefied level of fame where everyone knows who you are by just one name, Arnold. I've proven to the naysayers that a foreigner with an accent and with a 240-pound body can actually become a leading man and they have the sales worldwide. So fuck them all. I'll be talking in a minute with series director Leslie Chilcott, but first I'd like to welcome executive producer Alan Hughes. Alan, thank you for joining us on You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much. Alan, what made you think Arnold Schwarzenegger would be a good figure for a documentary? Well, number one thing, people always ask me, what makes a great story? How do you tell a great story? And I always say you, you start with a great character. If you got a great character, a dynamic character, someone as transcendent as uh, Arnold is, half your work is done. So I knew in my mind, to my mind, he was the ultimate immigrant story too. Arnold's the ultimate reinventor, which I love. These concepts, these ideas, these themes. And also, you know, like he's dealt with some adversity late in life that you're like, wow, how is he going to deal with this? You know, because it was always win, win, win with him. And on the personal tip, he had to face some um, challenges. And to see how he dealt with that, too, in the, in the, in the character he has um, was fascinating to me. What was his initial reaction about being documented in a documentary? I think he was initially a little bit reluctant. Then he was coming up. He was, I think, around the time we engaged this, he was about 73 years old. And I think... Any artist, public figure, writer, when you, get, when you get up to that point in your life, you're like, well, wait a minute. I could sense in him that he knew what he stood for. He's a very self-possessed person, but I think he wanted to find the, the meaning and the purpose in the entire journey from Austria up into present day. And he was looking to explore things finally, a curious you can see that I've, I've done enough of these now where you go, oh, this person's now ready to meet this moment. And then it, it, it wasn't a struggle with him at all. So Arnold obviously has a really strong point of view. I have to ask, did he want, request any editorial control over the final cut of this Arnold series? Arnold absolutely did not request 
or push for any editorial control whatsoever. Quite the contrary. Now, he had concerns and he had thoughts at times, but he never said, take this out or I'm uncomfortable with this, Um, which, by the way, is so rare for a subject to understand that in this day and age where people are doing so many of these. And um, when they're very famous people, usually they get a credit or their production companies involved or the people. And when that happens, I I feel the the project, the film, the doc, the series, whatever it is, is completely compromised. And I believe that Arnold just innately understood, given who he is and his place in the world, you know, he was, you know, he's protective over his legacy, obviously, but he never, I never once got a call from him where he said, he was never in the editing room, but I never got a call where he said, take this out or Mm. this, that, and the other. He may have been uncomfortable with some things, but we made that deal going in. We made the deal going in. I said, Arnold, if we do this right, you don't have to love it. You just have to respect it. Because if you Mm. love it, we probably have a problem. So one thing that you do visually is list all of the motion pictures he started in their box office gross. And I think that, you know, we tend to think of the biggies, right? Uh, the Terminator, Total Recall and so forth. But he's had a really large and impressive and diverse filmography when you see them all listed out that way, right? I mean, I think what, what I don't I forget, I don't think the public forgets is, yes, obvious action movie star, right? I forget the comedy run he made. He just suddenly stopped and he pointed at me. You're that Ghostbusters guy, aren't you? I said, yeah, that's my movie. He said, you know, I could be a Ghostbuster. It was such a clever way for him to let me know, I can do comedy. It's not just action stuff. Yeah. Oh, my God. He had a whole other life as a, as a comedy star. Yeah, his, his, the conversation with Danny DeVito I found particularly funny because he was just reminiscing about him as if they had this like entire career together to being comedic actors yeah. together. You Almost to a person, no one in the film, you know, except for Sylvester Stallone, which I do want to talk to you about in a sec, uh, like really didn't seem to have any like experience with Arnold that was anything other than fond which is so interesting because he is this big, big personality. And I think when we think of people like that, very often the association goes straight to like narcissist, like jerk, right? But like, th- you don't really get a sense of that at all when no, you're talking to people who knew him. That's a great point. Not only that, but when you're with him, he does the work too. He's very present. He's no bullshit when it comes to like the time he has to put in to do whatever the work is. It is required, whether it's in, you know, the governorship, his acting career and and bodybuilding. I once told him, I go, you know, in this world of so much bullshit, and there's a lot of people that bullshit their way through their careers or jobs. I said, bodybuilding is the one career you can't bullshit because it mm. shows, right? He started laughing. But as we're doing the doc, he was always very present, always very available, always uh, uh, telling stories. Um, the sense of humor was always there too. So that's really who he is. I, I've seen him in pensive moments, but I've rarely ever, if ever, I don't remember seeing him in a bad mood or crabby. If he doesn't like something, he just keeps walking. (laughs) That's what I noticed about him. I mean, you did get such a huge variety of people to talk about him. Some friends, some former foes. I think, um, uh, like Sylvester Stallone, who describes himself as the former foe. I have to get my ass kicked constantly. Whereas Arnold, he never got hurt much. And I'm going, Arnold, you can go out and fight a dragon and you come back with a Band-Aid. 
We were incredibly antagonistic. I think what you need is a little iron in your diet. We couldn't even stand to be in the same room. People had to separate us. Did you find people were eager to talk about him, you know, even including people like Sylvester Stallone? Yeah, that was pretty pretty easy because everyone that's worked with him or encountered him has had um, a positive, great experience. And he again, he just got that quality that he's a people person. So he activates a room. You always leave, leave you know, with your tank full, even if you're the, the so-called foe in the case of uh, Stallone. They became fast friends for a reason. Yeah. So athletes are usually beloved. Movie stars are beloved. Politicians, you know, you're usually inviting at least half the population to vilify you. Did you expect a change in tone in the commentary uh, when you were doing the third act of this film? Well, we know he had some challenges, some personal challenges, not only just as a governor, um, you know, some career challenges there, but there was some personal stuff that is pretty well known which I think makes the story uh, that much more richer and dynamic, unfortunately for him, right? But he has to deal with these things. But the thing I found inspiring is despite those things and because of those things, you know, whether it's some of the trials and tribulations he had as governor or some of the personal struggles he had in family and, and marriage, he takes accountability for his mistakes, which is rare. Like he doesn't make any excuses when it, it was a mistake he made. He doesn't blame anyone, which is something you, you rarely see in, in someone of that stature or any anyone that's um, a star, famous, rock star, whatever. They usually don't take accountability or they pass it off to someone else or they play the blame game. That's what I found refreshing about him dealing with any struggle in his life because we're not used to seeing Arnold deal with struggle. So this right. is only the last 15, 20 years that we've seen this. But... The reason why I agreed to produce the film was I was so inspired by what he's done. And when I talk about this act he's in right now, his whole crusade to fight climate change and pollution, his whole crusade about preserving democracy here and abroad. I speak with the same heartfelt concern when there was an attempted insurrection on January 6th last year. There are moments like this that are so wrong, then we have to speak up. I ask you to help me spread the truth. I'm like, wow, look at this guy. Like, mm-hmm. he's really trying to make a difference in the world. And it's so unusual for a so-called Republican to be the one trying to fight when you talk about what happened in Charlottesville and he releases that speech to those neo-Nazis. When you see what happened on January 6th and you see that speech he made, to those people, when you see him visiting Auschwitz and wanting to understand the other side of what happened, him coming from the side of his village and his father, they were on the wrong side of the of history in World War II, and they were the and they were losers. That was a losing ideology. He's uniquely positioned to talk about protecting and preserving democracy here and abroad. That's to me like no matter what drama he's dealt with in his personal or political life. Ultimately, when you look at his fourth and fifth act. What he's fighting for, what he's become a, a, an advocate for is so meaningful. And he's being like, I mean, I think he's more um, relevant now than he's ever been on the world stage. You know, that really struck me in a, in a moment in your film, too, because, you know, when you look, even look back, you know, at his political campaign, when the groping allegation came up, he admitted to it. 
and moved on. And then I think in your film, obviously, I think he took even more responsibility for it. But in the moment, he said he didn't he didn't deny it. He didn't do that thing that politicians do. You know, it wasn't like a full denial, denial, denial kind of thing. I found myself wondering, like, in today's world, would that work? Would Arnold Schwarzenegger survive that? And I, I my answer for me is like, Yes, because like no one does that. <laughs> but I'm wondering, I'm wondering what you think. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to know because like, he just seems so singular in that, in that openness and willingness to just yeah. engage with the moment and move on. Yeah. What do you think? I thought when I saw the archival footage, and I remember when it happened too, when he was giving a speech about the groping. And so what I want to say to you is, is that, yes, that I have behaved badly sometimes. Yes, it is true that I was on rowdy movie sets. And I have done things that were not right, which I thought then was playful. But now I recognize that I have offended people. You're like, holy shit, like who? (laughs) This is 20 years ago or 15, 17 years ago. You never hear that. But in our film, when he says, and I give Leslie a lot of credit for this because she really was able to keep things very grounded when it came to these issues as well, just with her background, period, and her personality. But when he says, listen, whether it was in the bodybuilding, Muscle Beach days, whether it was in that, you know, Hollywood days or whatever era, it's unacceptable in any era. There's no excuse for it. It was wrong then, it's wrong now. He says that in the film, you're like, all right, here again, this is an updated version of his come to Jesus and the whole thing. He's being very thorough, taking complete accountability and saying the most important thing, which is it's unacceptable in any era. There's no excuse. Even if the culture accepted it, it's unacceptable. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you knew enough about him that maybe I already know the answer to this question, but I'm wondering if you anticipated him, you know, refusing to discuss some of the troubles in his personal life or not. Well, the the number one thing I do when I, uh, before I agree to take on a documentary as a director or a producer is I sit down with the subject and I say, I don't know if I, I say, you know, for us to do this, for this to come across right, you're going to have to get undressed at a certain point. Hmm. I said, now, Arnold, whether you want to get undressed in the kitchen, the living room, the bathroom, the garage, I don't give a fuck. But, you know, we're going to have to deal with the thing, the elephant in the room. And so there is like a, I don't want to call it a negotiation because it's not a negotiation, but a conversation about, okay, here's the elephants in the room. Hopefully it's one. It's not elephants, depending on who the subject is. And you discuss it and how comfortable they are. And in the case of Arnold, there was never any pushback on it. And I found that refreshing, especially when it comes to his son, Joseph, and him being a father present in his life and taking accountability for that child as a, as a father and making sure that child doesn't feel like he's a mistake hmm. because Arnold may have done something that was not appropriate in his family and in his marriage and taking accountability as a father uh, to Joseph. I, I, that's, the, that's probably the reason why I agreed to do the film. I'm like, this is unusual for someone of this stature to take complete accountability. Yeah. So, Alan, what did you learn about Arnold Schwarzenegger that you didn't know before you embarked on this project? Man, I learned so many things, but what's the, the biggest thing I learned? That he feeds a donkey in his kitchen. Was that one of the things? By the way, that was one of the, one of the things that, that really <laughs> struck me was not only his miniature donkey and miniature horse, Whiskey and Lulu, but the first day I saw him, but that, quite endearing because he's really an animal lover. And he takes care of his animals. No one's out there shoveling his shit. He does it every morning. That's part of his, his big thing, right? But the doors were open to the house because we sit outside and it's casitas. And I go, I said, Arnold, I think Whiskey and Lulu's walking in the house. He goes, yeah, they have free reign of the house. 
They have free. I go, what kind of Dr. Doolittle shit is this, right? And those are like elephant sized shits if they, if they hit the, you know, whatever. But the thing that I learned that I, that changed me, you see it in the, in the film. I kept trying to figure out how he felt about things. And does he get depressed? Does he get down? Does he get lonely? And he goes, you know, people that get caught up in their feelings like that are, how do I feel today? Am I a victim? It's, it's a famous moment in the film. When you're a person that has always a goal, that always has a mission, the last time that you have to think about, how do I feel today? Am I depressed today? Do I feel sorry for myself? Have I become a victim? Oh my God, I feel so bad about myself. And always, I don't have time for this crap. He goes, I have no time to think about those things. I get up, I have to, I have to go feed Whiskey and Lulu and the dogs. I have to shovel the shit. Then I get on my bike and I go to the gym. And then I make my calls and I goes, people who are like in their feelings that much, he's, he's like, they're just not working enough. And I'm all about, I'm the opposite. I'm totally in my feelings. I'm totally like, how, why am I feeling this way? But he's right. Like you have to, you have to acknowledge some of the issues you're facing in life, but he's an example of like, stay moving, stay mm. in, stay in motion. You, you stop. If you stop, you'll die, you know? Um, mm. And, and I, it was, it was really interesting to get an insight because I was truly trying to focus him on the parts in his life where it was struggle and where it was hard and where it may have been, he may have been blue. And it was very difficult to get him to talk about those things. But ultimately, you see, when I pushed him, you see him go off the handle and talk about, like, not wanting to be that guy. Well, Alan Hughes, it's an extraordinary story. I really enjoyed watching it, and I loved talking to you about it. Thank you so much for coming on You Can't Make This Up. Thank you, Rebecca. I enjoyed it. And I'm joined now by director Leslie Chilcott. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, Leslie. It's so great to be here. Thank you. I'm curious, what made you think Arnold Schwarzenegger would be a good figure to put at the center of a documentary? I think it's an excellent question because initially, I'll be honest with you, I thought, what else is there to know? You know, I mean, (laughs) he's out there, like wherever you go in the world, people know the Pope, Bob Marley, (laughs) Marilyn Monroe, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? (laughs) So, but then, you know, I started thinking about it and as a filmmaker and as a director, you want stories with layers, right? And, you know, what other person has gone from a small town in Austria in the, at the time, obscure sport of bodybuilding, you know, who's gone from being a champion bodybuilder to a top grossing actor? And then, of course, the governor of California. So, you know, there's plenty of complex layers there. So I'm curious, I mean, this is a maybe a silly question, but what is he like in person? Had you had you met him before or this is the first time you met him? And what kind of like figure does he cut when you first meet him? I had not met him before, but I used to work out in, at the you know latest incarnation of Golds in the early 2000s. So I would see him and I would see him driving around, you know, with the wreath on the front of his car or whatever he was, you know, celebrating at the time. But the big surprise for me is he's hilarious. He's really funny. 
And he doesn't want to just be the center of attention, although he's quite commanding at that as well. You know, when the Terminator tells a joke, you listen. But he wants you to have a good time, too. And he wants to know about you. So, like, the depth of his quick-witted humor, I, I had no idea. Well, we do get these great peaks of the way that he lives in your documentary. And one of the first things this series shows us about his life today is him living in this beautiful chalet with this miniature donkey walking into the kitchen looking for snacks. Did you think to yourself, has Arnold lost it a little bit? <laughs> donkey walking into his kitchen? What I think he's never lost is that ability to, to that, that childlike wonder, right? So he has miniature donkey. He has a miniature horse. He just got a pig. He has multiple dogs. And the first thing he does in the morning is he gets up and he feeds the animals by himself with no one else around. It's like a Zen space that he goes into. Um, and it's really quite charming. It's also hilarious when I'm you know, recording audio at his house and all of a sudden the donkey's like neighing in the background and making all of this noise, you know? So it's, it's like a castle of all sorts of entertaining things. So I think it's, I think it's pretty charming. So Arnold Schwarzenegger has probably done more media interviews in his life than I've had hot meals. What is it like talking to someone who has spent the last five decades talking about himself? Well, he's really honed, you know, what we call talking points, right? Mm. And he's honed a lot of his stories. So I had to come up with a strategy to get around those. And of course, people want to hear some of that, right? Like people want to hear I'll be back because it's not only his mantra, it's it, he he's programming the fact that he actually will be back, you know? And it's it's a cyclical thing. The more he says it, it seems like the more opportunities and the more media he goes into. I mean, he's doing an app right now called The Pump, you know? So he's always coming back. And I think it took a while to get off of those talking points. So we would FaceTime several times a week. We would talk about what we were going to talk about. And then a lot of times I would go over there and just do audio only interviews. And it got to be so funny. The interviews went on so long. He actually said to me, and this is an example of his humor, why don't you just make the documentary longer so you don't have to keep asking me for shorter answers? <laughs> <laughs> I have to wonder, though, because when discussing his PR and the creation of his image, he uses that term that translates roughly into bullshit. <laughs> it's dismay. It's dismay right there. Everything's bullshit. <laughs> to sell things, you have to have dismay. The only way I could translate it really is like bullshit, right? That in America, we just say bullshit. When you go out and promote a movie, the pump is better than coming as, oh, it's me. Do you ever find yourself thinking, like, what is he bullshitting me about? Oh, yeah. What is, what is you know, what's real and what isn't real? And that's why um, I actually got the most out of a trip when we went to Tal, his hometown in Austria. And I met a lot of his friends from when he was in the single digits, you know, from when he was like six, seven, eight years old. And he has a friend there called Peter who actually became mayor of their town. And my husband is German. So he went with us and would talk to Peter extensively in German. And we had a lot of interviews with him and a lot of other early you know, friends of Arnold. So I could make sure, I'm sure there's some tall tales in there, you know, I mean, like our memories, but I could make sure that when he said he milked the cows down the street, the neighbor showed me, you know, where it was. His friend showed me where it was. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of that to him. He's a consummate performer. 
But he's at a point in his life where he recognized that, you know, no subject could be off the table in our interviews and that he had to show a side of himself that he hadn't before. So he seemed to understand that. Hmm. There are a couple of scenes dealing with young Arnold that you illustrate through reenactments. How hard was it to cast an actor that could pass for young Arnold in silhouette? It was actually pretty hard, you know, and renting vintage lederhosen and all of those things. <laughs> and I, I'm glad that you mentioned silhouette because my idea with him, you know, because neither of his parents are living, his brother isn't living, there wasn't anyone else to talk about his youth, save for a couple of his friends, was to create uh, these impressionistic scenes. I call it original photography instead of reenactments because you don't actually see faces. There aren't lines. There aren't specific things that are happening. There are impressions. And it was really fun trying to, even though you were just going to see a jawline or a side of the head, you know, we had to get that distinct look. And when I was in Arnold's former house, which is a museum now, there are only a handful of pictures of him as a kid, you know, and he would point to this picture of him as a kid where you see his arm and he's like, look at that bicep, biceps popping already. Oh, my God. <laughs> so is that an actual statue of him in front of his boyhood home in Tall? It is. Yeah, it's a museum now. And, you know, I witnessed someone showing up and kissing it. I mean, there are young men from all over the world who at 14 or 15 discovered Arnold was from this same small town as them. And somehow, despite all his celebrity, people really feel because of this small town nature and maybe his personality, that his success is accessible to them. And it just means so much for them. People cry, they go through and get excited to see some of his early weights. And um, it's, it's quite fascinating how worldwide um, his influence is. I'm curious about when this museum and when this statue kind of happened, because I'm not sure they would have built a statue for Arnold if he'd just been Mr. Olympia, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, the house had been sold a couple of times and then a gentleman bought it and turned it into a museum. And then they put that statue out front. But other than a statue and like a museum hour sign, it looks like a regular house. And, and as you see in the series, that house had several levels to it. And the chief of the police lived on the upper level, which is where Arnold grew up with his brother. And the forester lived on the bottom level. So there's this really funny scene in which he has this, he has all this dialogue redubbed in the Hercules movie. <laughs> no man is superior to Hercules. I'm Hercules. So you told me. No mortal is superior to Hercules. And it struck me that it's kind of the sliding doors moment where instead of becoming the future biggest movie star in the world, he could have become this like bit part actor. You're so right. You're so right. And that's where the lessons, you know, that at least he holds um, that he wants the rest of us to share is he was envisioning his future long before New Age books came out and said, you know, if you can think it, you can be it and all of these things. And he was just too stubborn to give up. And he had this belief in himself that no matter what, he was going to get there. And it took him years after that to get a good part. But he finally went from the body to the face, as James Cameron says in his interview. Now, judging by your edit, you did say Arnold has a good sense of humor because there does seem to be some amusement by Arnold's around Arnold's story that the role of the Terminator almost went to O.J. Simpson. Yeah. What did you think of that? Oh, my God. <laughs> 
I, <laughs> I paused. <laughs> I looked at my husband and I was like, what? <laughs> During a conversation, it became clear that no one was really hooked to O.J. Simpson playing Terminator because he could not be sold as a killing machine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he seemed he seemed to get it, right? I mean, you did say he's a very funny guy. He's a very funny guy. And also James Cameron verified the story. You know, he had a producer call him and say, listen, you're going to cast OJ and Arnold in your Terminator movie. So, it, you know, James Cameron verified that version. So Arnold said he motivated himself in bodybuilding by identifying adversaries, and he did the same in acting, apparently. I want to know, how eager was Sylvester Stallone to discuss his beef with Arnold Schwarzenegger? You know what? Stallone was fantastic. He said we could talk about whatever, and that they really couldn't stand to be in the room with each other for many years. And that had all passed and both of them owned their part in it. In fact, each one separately said it was probably more me. But I think that competition, I'm not going to call it healthy competition, but that competition seems to have really helped both of them. And they stay in touch, you know, and they help each other. And, you know, Stallone was completely willing to do the interview and he was really good. It reminded me a little bit of like a last dance moment when you have like Michael Jordan's rivals talking about him in the documentary about him. It was pretty extraordinary, I think. You know, every politician wants to play up their successes, I think. But, you know, there are difficult moments here, too. And in his first run for governor, stories emerged about Schwarzenegger groping women, which he admitted to back then, but also minimized. In your interview, he takes a much more definitive stand about his behavior. The day I can look at it and kind of say, it doesn't really matter what time it is. If it's the Muscle Beach days, the 40 years ago, or the day, this was wrong. It was bullshit. And forget all the excuses, it was, it was wrong. Were you surprised that he essentially admitted to this on camera for your documentary? We had talked about it beforehand, so I wasn't surprised. I didn't know exactly what he was going to say. But, you know, from the very beginning... Uh, we had an agreement that there wasn't any topic that was off the table. So that wasn't our first interview. We worked up to it. And, you know, we had conversations both in person and on FaceTime about how important it was for him to be honest about this. But when he did it, you know, part of the reason that master interview is in his office at his house is so he would be comfortable and relaxed and he could actually show us a little different side of him. And, and, and he came through. He also owns up to causing the breakup of his marriage and the fallout on his children. How did you react when you heard the affection for which he spoke of his ex-wife, Maria Shriver? I thought it was really telling. I mean, they are good friends. They're, they still keep in touch. Obviously, you know, they're not together and they both have moved on in that sense. But they shared a lifetime together and they were married successfully, if you will, for a very long time. So there's still important influences and friends in each other's life. Any kind of a special day, we are all together as a family. And everyone is really happy about that. But it's not what it was, where we were all together, kind of found the one roof as a family. That is not the case anymore. 
He also expresses that regret, but without making his son Joseph feel he's unwanted. Do you think he's navigating that emotional line well? I'm not sure it's for me to say. It's an excellent question. What I do think is interesting is that even when you've done something like he has that he acknowledges was terrible, there's a human life and he's an adult man. And so I'm not sure it's right to ask to have empathy for Arnold in that situation. I'm definitely not saying that. But to understand that he can't go around saying, I made a mistake because there's a human, I think is a really interesting thing to look at. And the fact that he owns up to not wanting to discuss it, and he said, we're going to discuss it, and he agreed in the documentary, but every time he discusses it, it may cause someone in his family pain. So he has to revisit the bad thing that he did on a regular basis. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious, you spent a lot of time with Arnold. What does the future hold for this 75-year-old bodybuilding champion, movie star, and retired politician? Well, there's a uh, writer called Tom Juno that had the best quote, I think, ever about Arnold. And that is that it's entertaining to look at the ongoing comedy of his limitlessness, right? So he seems to, you know, at 75, he could be kicking back, hanging out with the horse, the donkey, the animals, (laughs) the whole thing, you know, maybe doing the occasional podcast. But no, he's got a daily newsletter. He's launching an app. He's in a new TV series, FUBAR, you know, he's doing this documentary. So um, his 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 new plan, he says, is to live forever. Well, judging by this documentary, it looks like that might happen. <laughs> Seeing him ski and everything. Um, Leslie Chilcott, I can't thank you enough for talking to me about Arnold, both the man and the documentary. It's a real, real pleasure to watch it and to talk to you about it. Oh, same for me. That was great. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to executive producer Alan Hughes and director Leslie Chilcott. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 